0: So I want you to imagine for a second, just to set the tone for the passage, imagine if you found out your roommate or your classmate was a foreign spy. What would you do? LVC, you never know. It's a hotbed for political strife here, right? What would you do? How would you react if you found out someone you knew pretty well had been sent by a foreign government to infiltrate America or LVC's political structure? Seriously, what would you do? Interaction, what would you do? You I I start, <laughs> start questioning other things. It would kind of rock your world a little bit, right? Would anyone report them? <laughs> 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 TJ's like, no, adamantly <laughs> no. You would join them, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, hopefully this stays hypothetical for you guys. I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. But uh, a while ago, you know, before even I was born, 1957, yes, I wasn't born yet. Uh, during the Cold War, when, you know, Russia and the U.S. were at conflict with one another, there was a, a foreign spy by the name of Rudolf Abel, who was found in New York City and arrested and identified as a foreign uh, spy for the, for the KGB, And not only was he identified and arrested, you know, at at that point, um, he needed a lawyer because he was, you know, in American territory. And that's our system. And as you can imagine, I mean, I don't think any of you guys would volunteer to be your trader's uh, lawyer. Right. As you can imagine, not a lot of people were signing up for that gig. No one wanted to to defend and be an advocate for a foreign spy, uh, except for this guy named James Donovan. James Donovan took on uh, the, the terrible job of being a spies lawyer and advocate. And as you can imagine the type of ridicule that he got for, for taking that position on, because not only did he sign up and just you know, sit into that position, okay, I'll do it, he, he advocated and def- he defended Rudolph Abel and actually got his sentence talked down from a death sentence to 30 years in prison. Can you imagine being in that position? how scandalous that would be. And he got a lot of ridicule. A lot of people didn't like him. That sort of tone, that sort of atmosphere is what I want you to think about as we read this passage. This idea of of scandalous advocacy that would make you question whether or not you could trust that person. Because this passage, we're going to see the next kind of phase of how Jesus interacts with people. And it's like James Donovan, the lawyer. It is a scandalous Advocacy for people that others would never come to their side to defend. And it's going to challenge us to rethink not only how we think about Jesus, but how we think about ourselves. So let's read Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, (laughs) Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray, and then we'll we'll talk about it. God, would you help us see uh, this passage clearly? Would you help us see your son clearly? And would you help us see ourselves clearly? That we would uh, be humbled by this passage, but also encouraged by the grace that you extend to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at two things here in this passage. Maybe you're already starting to pick up on the tone that that I was mentioning, that there's irritation caused by Jesus, but then he also extends an invitation. So let's first talk about this irritation that Jesus creates. Now, uh, just to point out the two different groups of people, the the main groups of people that are kind of interacting here, you see in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees. And do you see their, their irritation in verse 16? we're going we're to dive into this a little bit more. But their question is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're irritated by the people that Jesus is spending time with. And the first thing I want to point out is that their irritation is reasonable. Like it makes sense that they would be irritated by Jesus' social choices. Now, what do we know about the scribes and the Pharisees? So the scribes and the Pharisees... Uh, different times you'll see groups like Sadducees mentioned, they were the religious elite of the day. So they were the ones who had their act together. They were the ones who went to church every Sunday. they were the ones who were raising their hands during Sunday school class. They were the ones who came to a large group on Thursday nights. These were the, the religious people, the spiritual people, the people who had their act together. Now, who are the people that they have a problem with? Do you notice, here's a pro tip for Bible study. An author is going to repeat things that are important and things that you want to pay attention to that the highlight of the passage and do you notice the group that's repeated multiple times so first we see levi he's sitting at a tax booth but then beyond that look at verse 15 tax collectors and sinners then verse 16 when the scribes see him sitting with sinners and tax collectors and then their question why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners so what is it about these people now that, that second term, sinners, that's not like the, the, the way that we use that term in, in Christian circles, that everyone's a sinner. It was more of like a social class, like people who were murderers and thieves and explicitly immoral. That was kind of the, the classification. But then tax collectors, they were in a class all on their own. I mean, even nowadays, we don't like paying taxes, right? Who loves the IRS? No, you don't. <laughs> But tax collectors, specifically in this day, would have been hated even more. And the reason is, so, history lesson, you guys ready? Don't worry, it'll be brief. But Israel at the time, occupied by the Roman Empire, and tax collectors were set up to collect tax. There you go. But the thing is, with Israel, there was a lot of Jewish tax collectors that would have been, you know, working for the Roman government, taking money from their own people. But then what they would do is they would take more money than they needed, and they would profit off of the unnecessary tax. So they would get rich off of their own people. So not only were they traders working for a foreign government, they were also dishonest and really seen as thieves. Like tax collectors back then, uh, in terms of the Jewish circles, they weren't allowed in synagogues, they weren't allowed to testify in court. If you were poor, you were forbidden to receive money from a tax collector. That's, that's the, the weight of how much people did not like tax collectors. And if you think about it, the irritation here, again, it makes sense. I mean, imagine someone betraying you and, and stealing from you and getting rich off of that betrayal. Like, this isn't, uh, this isn't Jesus as he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. It's not him sitting with the kid who sits by himself in the cafeteria. This is like Jesus sitting with the bully who stole money from that kid. Do you see the tension here? It, it reminds me of a guy I knew in college. Um, so I was on the lacrosse team. When I was a junior, uh, there was a, a freshman group of guys who roomed together. And the one guy, I'll call him... I didn't come up with a fake name. Shoot. Chad. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Chad. Is there a Chad here? Okay, good. <laughs> so Chad stole money from his two roommates to buy drugs for himself. So his roommates and his teammates on the lacrosse team, he stole money and then bought drugs for himself. How do you think those guys felt? Betrayed. And understandably furious. That is the, the mood and the mentality of how people felt about tax collectors. So do you see the, the reasonable irritation that, that they would have when they see Jesus like fraternizing with these people, spending time fellowshipping with these people and so their, their irritation is, is reasonable and if you look at their question, verse 16 why does he eat with these people? Mark wants us to ask that question why is Jesus eating with these people? but the thing is when they ask the question and you can see it they're not asking in like a, a curious wonder like oh wow why would Jesus eat with these people? do you see their demeanor? See, what what I want to show is how Mark and Jesus are trying to show how this question and this irritation is revealing something about these people who are asking the question. So their question is reasonable, but ultimately it's revealing. And look at their demeanor in verse 16. So everyone's sitting around the table enjoying time together, but they're not at the table. Do you see how they're kind of like standing far off? It says when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And who did they talk to? says that they talk to his disciples. It's like they pull him off to the side, and like, why is Jesus doing that? Do you see their demeanor? They're separating, they're dis- distancing themselves. And you can catch the tone. It's not curiosity, it's disgust. Do you see that? They are repulsed by the fact that Jesus would spend time with these people. And where you really see the exposure, where you really see something revealed, is Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus steps in and he says, those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see how Jesus' response, translation, Jesus saying, yeah, I didn't come for people who have their act together. Do you notice how that's starting to poke at the Pharisees' perspective? Jesus saying, yeah, I, I came for people who don't have their act together. And so what is he saying? He's saying, you think you have your act together. And you're pointing the finger at people who you think don't deserve friendship, community with God, and grace. Here's what I want us to see. Their arrogance is seeping through the pages. Do you see the hypocrisy and the pride as they point the finger at Jesus and the people he's spending time with? This passage is revealing their arrogance. And, and in that, there, there's two primary components at work. So as they're, they're looking at people, it, it's, it's revealing how they feel about themselves and how they feel about other people. So first, they obviously think less of other people. And on the flip side, they think pretty highly of themselves. They think less of other people, and they think highly of themselves. That's, that's pride. And maybe putting it in, in different terms... What their perspective is, is that certain people are beyond the reach of God's mercy. And they themselves are beyond the need of God's mercy. Let me say that again. They thought that certain people were beyond the reach of God's mercy, while they themselves were beyond the need of God's mercy. Mark is revealing their arrogance. It's as if they're walking on stilts looking down at everyone around them. And here's the challenge. So we're here Thursday night, large group, Christian group on campus. This passage is primarily pointing out the arrogance of religious and spiritual people. It's primarily pointing out the arrogance of religious and spiritual people. And this will keep happening in the Gospels. This will keep happening in Mark. It happens all the time throughout the scriptures. Where God looks at his own people and says, get off your stilts. And so this is is the challenge for you and me. For those of you who would identify with Christ. For those of you who would say, yeah, I, I consider myself one of God's people. In what areas in your life are you walking on stilts? What areas in your life are you uh, proud, arrogantly walking around looking down at other people? And a lot of times it has to do with our spirituality, right? We think we are morally better than other people. But it plays out, and this will get beyond the, the religious aspect, it plays out in so many different ways in our lives. Academically, right? Do you walk in your classroom on stilts? Judging the people who didn't study hard enough for the test. What about athletically? You probably don't play baseball on stilts. But metaphorically speaking, whatever sport or activity you participate in, socially speaking, in what ways is your arrogance clouding your perspective of yourself and other people? And here's just a diagnostic test. There's a lot of ways to expose pride and arrogance, but when you are irritated... other people, that's usually a good sign that your arrogance is being exposed. So, what about other people or other situations or things that other people say irritate you? Pay attention to that. And so, by way of application, acknowledge your arrogance. This passage is meant to expose our arrogance and our pride. Mainly by pointing out the way that other people irritate us. So this passage first, we see the, the, the irritation that Jesus creates. But at the same time, from another perspective, we also see an invitation that Jesus offers. What's the invitation that Jesus offers here? First off, Jesus is offering an invitation of grace. Jesus offers grace here in this passage. Now, I want you to to reread and think about the scene of verse 14. Think about this. Where does Jesus meet Levi? Remember tax collectors, you know, extortionists, taking advantage of people, dishonest thieves. Jesus meets this guy, Levi, at the tax booth. He doesn't wait for Levi to get off of a shift. He doesn't meet him at his house, you know, kind of in private. He meets him at his place of disgrace. Think about that. Was he in the middle of stealing money from a neighbor, skimming off the top? Jesus goes to the very place that Levi was known for taking advantage of people. Like, imagine if uh, my friend, what I call him, Chad, <laughs> imagine if Jesus walked in when Chad was in the middle of stealing money from his roommates. Imagine if Jesus walked into your classroom as you were peering over your shoulder to see answers to the test. Imagine if Jesus knocked on the door when you're scrolling through your phone looking at photos and videos of things you know dishonor the Lord. Imagine if Jesus sat down at the table at lunch while you're in the middle of telling a story that's gossiping about someone you know. Jesus meets us at the tax booth. But look at what he says. He looks at Levi and he says, Follow me. He doesn't come up with disgust or disappointment. It's an invitation of grace. And he says, Follow me. You see, this is what Jesus does. This is what's scandalous and this is what rubs the the religious people the wrong way. That Jesus meets people in the middle of their despicable activity and he says, I want to be with you. His invitation is one of grace. And so let me ask you this question. What's your tax booth? Like, what is that thing that you hope no one ever finds out about you? That thing that you think you you can't really, you know, talk about around other people or that thing that you think is going to cause a lot of shame and embarrassment. What's your tax booth? Because that's where Jesus meets you. And he says, follow me. His invitation is one of grapes. And we see this grace, this invitation of grace, overflow into a community. Do you see that in the passage? Look at what happens after Levi follows Jesus. What are they doing in the next scene? They're sitting around the table, and there's a little party going on. And notice, this is at Levi's house. Like, I've always thought this is interesting. Jesus says, follow me, and then they end up at Levi's house. (laughs) It's like Jesus was on his way to Levi's house. And then Levi throws a party. And you see who's at this party, more tax collectors and more sinners. You get the picture that uh, Levi is inviting his tax collector friends. And so here's here's the reality. This is amazing. Grace doesn't just extend to Levi. It extends through Levi. And he's saying, this grace that I've received, I want to share it with, with my other friends who don't have it all together. And he invites them in. Because that's what grace does. It it creates a new type of community. And there's another aspect here that, if you're reading the the book of Mark, you know, kind of reading it all together, there's something else that you can miss about who's at the table here. Do you notice it's not just Jesus and tax collectors and sinners? Who's the other group? Verse 15, his disciples. And earlier in chapter 1, do you remember what, what job his first disciples had? What were they? Fishermen. Where's Levi's tax booth? It's beside the sea. So, Levi probably collected tax from fishermen. That that may have even been his majority, the majority of his income was taxing fishermen specifically. And here we have these tax collectors hanging out with these fishermen. Do you see the radical community that Jesus creates? He invites us into something radically new and radically different. And and notice they're not just like begrudgingly there, like, oh my gosh. Look at verse 15. He's reclining at table, and these guys are reclining at the table. They are eating, they're feasting, they're partying together. They're enjoying a community of peace and belonging. Jesus invites us into this radical community. Yeah, one of my best friends in college, uh, him and I couldn't be more different. This guy, Dave, he's Korean. He's incredibly smart and book smart and intelligent. Totally not me. I'm a lax bro from Jersey. No, we would never have hung out together if it weren't for Jesus. And yet God brought us together and we had a sweet friendship when we were in college. That's what Jesus does with people. He brings them together because grace doesn't just extend to you, it extends through you. So let me ask you this question. If you identify as a follower of Jesus... Are you living like Levi lived? Are you inviting other people to the table? Are you inviting other people to experience the grace that you have experienced? Because that's an amazing opportunity to bring other people in. Who are you inviting to come sit with Jesus? And if you're not a Christian, if you want to identify as a Christian, or you're skeptical or curious, I want you to know that we want you here that Jesus wants you here, and that we are a community that does not have it all together. We are a mess, and we want want you to be a part of this, because this is a place, because of Christ, where it's totally okay to not be okay, and so if you're a Christian, man, there are empty seats at the table, and if you're not a Christian, those seats are for you. Jesus invites us into a radical community. And the last thing we see is that Jesus invites us into restoration. He invites us into restoration. I want you to look again at how Jesus responds to the question in verse 17. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's think about that image that he uses. He relates himself to that of a physician, a doctor. He's telling us what his purpose is. He's saying his, his purpose is restorative. And this is important to get. You know, the way that I, we, I think sometimes our culture and the way that our culture is going, both American in general, but church, is that Jesus is just trying to create this, this social club of belonging and tolerance. And that's not true. I mean, that's true to one level, but Jesus, he's saying, I mean, look what he says. He's calling sinners to the table and he's calling himself a doctor and doctors bring restoration. And so Jesus is saying, sinners are coming to the table. Yeah, you can come and I'm going to meet you at the tax booth. But once you leave, you are not going to stay the same. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to save you. And you are going to be changed. And that's good news because Jesus is saying he is going to provide the healing that we need. And so as we take a step back and look at all of this together, Jesus' invitation, it's one of grace, which means you do not have to have your act together, that he will meet you in your place of shame and that he will bring a ton of other people like you, like me, who do not have our act together into this beautiful community as we look and spend time with him. And ultimately, he is working to restore us, to, to heal us and to save us from our sin. But verse 17, the challenging call is this, that you have to admit you're in need. He isn't saying, you know, there are some people who are in need and there are some people who aren't. Some people need a doctor, some people don't. He's saying that there are people who know they need a doctor and people who deny that they need a doctor. So the question is, which person are you? Will you admit that you are in need of a Savior? That you need healing, that you need restoration? Admit your need. The first step is acknowledging our arrogance and our pride. And then the second step is humbling ourselves in admitting our need. It's saying, I don't have my act together. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. I'm weak. I need Dr. Jesus. I need a savior. That's the invitation that Jesus extends to you and me tonight. And let me end on this because we get a picture of ultimately how he's going to bring restoration, how we're going to experience grace and true community. And it's, again, it's a small detail that you might miss. Who do the scribes and the Pharisees ask the question to in verse 16? The disciples. Who answers their question? Jesus. Jesus steps in and he says, yeah, yeah, these guys behind me, I have their back. And I'm going to answer the question. And you get a small glimpse of what Jesus came to do in the first place. He came to step in between the accusation and the sinner. To so not just answer the question with his words, but to answer the question with his life. I know for a lot of you guys, yesterday is a day of history, September 11th. But I grew up in New Jersey, and I have a few friends who lost parents in the World Trade Center. And so it's always a, a day of, of really uh, it's lament and grief and, and really wrestling and reaching out to my friends and telling them that I'm thinking of them and continuing to mourn the tragedy that happened. And out of the the thousands of lives that were lost on 9-11, there was almost 500 people, first responders, who gave their lives to save the lives of others. 500 people who stepped in the way in order to save and rescue people who were dying. That's a picture of the gospel. That's a picture of what Jesus came to do for you and for me and for everyone on this campus a step in between, and to rescue people who are in need. And so that's the invitation. Lift up your hands, get on your knees, and say to Jesus, I need you. And the grace and the community and the restoration will follow. Let's pray.